Hey everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks Podcast. My name is Jeff, and today I'm going to be sharing a story that I wrote back in 2010 about a hut-to-hut bikepacking light trip that I took with a group of friends from Durango, Colorado to Moab, Utah. Again, this story was published back in 2010, so in case you missed it, here's the story. Nate and Matt arrived at Durango Mountain Resort early after parking the truck in Moab and catching the Porcupine Shuttle to Durango. The locals recommended skipping the fire road start out of Durango Mountain Resort and shuttling to the 10,800-foot Molas Pass to ride the Colorado Trail to the first hut. Since Durango Mountain Resort sits at roughly 8,000 feet and the hut was at 11,000 feet, we figured this would be a good way to skip some of the 3,000-foot climb to the hut. That would turn out to be a bad assumption. Our shuttle driver described the day's route as rolling, and then the first part of the climb wasn't too bad. We were passed early on by a group of day trippers, and later we passed another group of self-supported riders on a four-day trip down to Durango. The trail eventually climbed above treeline, and all of us struggled to adjust to the altitude, since most of us had been at sea level just the day before. I crashed at one point on an easy section of trail and scraped a good bit of skin off my leg, a result of pure exhaustion. This part of the Colorado Trail eventually tops out around 12,500 feet, and we were all anxious to descend off the windy pass. We lost 1,500 feet over the next three miles, and then began another climb through a forest sliced with rambling creek crossings. Near the end of the descent, I got a pinch flat as a result of not inflating my rear tire enough before we left. I brought four spare tubes for the trip and was a little pissed that I had to use one already, but figured I wouldn't make the same mistake again. But after just a couple miles, I could tell I didn't add enough air to my tire using the mini pump, so I decided to add more. Now, I'm not sure if it was because of fatigue or if my pump was faulty, but I ended up shearing off the valve stem of my Presta tube, sending a blast of air toward the sky. Two tubes down, halfway through day one. By this time, most of us were walking our bikes anyway because we were spent and the trail was rocky and steep in places. We had a map of the area but weren't quite sure how far we were from the hut. The hut outfitters provided us with GPS tracks for each day, but unfortunately only the standard route had been mapped. Eventually we came out at a fire road and seemed to lose the Colorado Trail completely. After about a mile down the road in the wrong direction, we corrected our path and finally made it to the hut at 6 p.m. after more than eight hours in the saddle. Total mileage, just 24 miles and 4,200 feet of climbing. Each hut along our route was located just off a forest road, and we had a key to open the doors and windows. I was the first to arrive at the hut and was shocked to find the door was completely wide open. The huts are stocked with food, candy bars, water, beer, sleeping bags, bunk beds, and other stuff, and I was assuming the place would be completely ransacked with the door wide open like that. As far as we could tell, the only group in front of us was about four days ahead, which would have given someone plenty of time to clean the place out. Fortunately, everything was in place, though there were only two Snickers left. After devouring candy bars and pretzels, we were all too tired to cook, and to be honest, I wasn't sure I could make it six more days. Our first day was supposed to be easy, but we barely made it in before dark. What would longer days with more climbing look like? Soon after we arrived, we spotted a group of deer grazing just outside the hut, which was somehow calming after such a stressful day. We stoked the wood-burning stove and turned the lights out around 8.30 that night as the temperatures dipped into the low 40s, happy to be in our sleeping bags. 
The next morning on day two, we woke up to dark, cloudy skies and a cold wind, so none of us were really in a hurry to get back on the bike. After making some scrambled eggs and grabbing handfuls of energy bars, we eased onto the forest road and started a fast, bumpy descent toward Barlow Lake and Highway 145. As I was picking up speed toward the bottom of the descent, I felt my rear rim ping off a sharp rock, another pinch flat. By this time, we had all recognized the cause of my flats, low pressure, and all the guys took turns pumping up the new tube. In the end, I'm guessing we had 60 PSI in that puppy, which made me feel a lot better, though my ass would soon disagree. After crossing Highway 145, we began a gradual climb with incredible views of the valley below. By the end of the day, we had ridden 28 miles, descended 4,200 feet, and climbed about 3,000 feet, with a big push coming at the end toward the Black Mesa Hut, which was located at 10,600 feet. It stayed cloudy all day, which is pretty rare for Colorado, and we were stoked to get a fire going in the wood stove at the hut. After settling in at around 3 p.m., we walked down to a small stream to wash clothes and quickly found ourselves running back to the hut in the rain. Day 3. Despite getting some glimpses of the sun the previous evening, we awoke to another gray, windy day above 10,000 feet, and we were pretty sure we'd be riding in the rain at some point during the day. The good news was the route description said we'd be descending more than 5,000 feet and climbing only about 2,000. Downhill is good. Even though our route was completely on forest roads, the scenery was great with views of large reservoirs down below and aspen and spruce trees all around us. Forest Road 615 offered a surprisingly fun downhill complete with rocks, stream crossings, and gnarly rutted lines. At around 7,700 feet, we passed by Miramont Reservoir and were stoked to take a dip until we felt how cold the water was. I stripped down to my bike shorts and waded in, but after just a few minutes, my feet were completely numb. After a siesta on the dock, we pushed over a short 700-foot climb and zoomed down to the hut, ending the day at 35 miles. It was pretty amazing to see the changes in scenery from 10,600 feet to 7,200 feet, and at this point there were cacti and scrub brush everywhere. The views from the hut were pretty incredible, but unfortunately the lower elevations meant no more cold beer for the next few days. We spent the afternoon and evening watching the clouds roll over the distant peaks and nearby mesas, and that night a big thunderstorm rolled through and soaked the arid soil. Only in Colorado. Day 4. Dry Creek Basin was anything but dry when we awoke, and based on the conditions, we were seriously considering the alternate muddy day route. In fact, the route description said if things were super muddy, our best bet would be to ride on the road to the town of Naturita, get a motel for the night, and skip the wedding bell hut completely. The route description also mentioned dust storms could be an issue along the way, but we figured the previous night's rain would at least keep that under control. Plan was to head out on the overgrown and rutted double track to see just how muddy things were. Fortunately, conditions were decent, with only the occasional mud bog along the way. After a few miles of sunflowers and fragrant sagebrush, we spit out onto a wide gravel road and blasted down to the town of Basin, Colorado. Basin really isn't much of a town. There's just one store as far as we could tell. But we were able to stock up on cold drinks, chips, and hand sanitizer before heading out. Matt even ordered a grilled cheese and tomato sandwich from the kitchen, despite the fact that it was only 10.30 in the morning. From Basin, we took road U29, an unpaved farm road that seemed to stretch into infinity. There were several short, steep climbs, but mostly the road just seemed to go up. 
with the wind full in our faces and little change on the horizon, felt like we were riding stationary bikes for hours on end. This would be the first of two long valley slogs between mountain ranges, a boring but necessary part of our journey. At around mile 30, we crested the final climb, and were amazed to see that we had been climbing a ramp the entire time, with canyons unfolding ahead and below. We began descending the rocky road, which was a blast after all that flat climbing. We found the hut about a half mile away from the main dirt road, with surprising and amazing views of the Dolores River below. After a dinner of boxed macaroni and cheese with Spam, made from powdered milk and no butter, we explored the area around the hut. The landscape was pocked full of rusted cars, broken glass, and abandoned uranium mines, but offered some of the best sunset views of the trip. Day 5. The next morning, Jake mentioned his tires were low due to the change in altitude over the past few days. We were now somewhere around 6,500 feet, so he suggested we all check our pressures. My front tire definitely felt like it could use some air, so I added a few strokes, removed the pump, then stared in horror at my bent Presta valve stem. I quickly attempted to screw it down, but the air was rushing out. Matt was nearby and came over to assess the situation. With one quick motion, he broke the bent stem off, and the hissing stopped. Nate remarked that he had done the same thing once before, but didn't get more than a couple hours out of the tube before it went completely flat. Fortunately, I was able to patch one of my pinched tubes the night before, so I at least had two potential replacements. Our route for the day started back on the often rocky BLM road we traveled the afternoon before, and it traced the edges of Bull Canyon for about eight miles before beginning a sustained climb onto the mesa above. From the mesa, we could see the town of Bedrock and the green Paradox Valley below. Our path into the valley, the infamous Catch'em Up Trail. Catch'em Up started out as a shortcut trail used by cattle ranchers to move their herds out of the valley for summer grazing up on the mesa. Our route guide painted this as a must-ride, though there was an easier alternate and it promised 1,100 feet of descending in just one mile. Matt lowered his seat posts and tucked in for the descent, which went pretty well at first. Until, that is, the trail became completely ridiculous. Huge boulders, non-existent lines, sharp switchbacks, and steep angles made it impossible to ride more than a few feet at a time before dismounting. To his credit, Matt rode way more of catch up than the rest of us, though I think even he was a little disappointed with the condition of the trail. At the bottom of Ketchum Up, we rode less than a mile to the Bedrock store and scarfed down microwave Philly cheese steaks and chimichangas. The rest of the ride featured flat roads across Paradox Valley with amazing views in every direction. The Knight's Hut was located near the Paradox Valley bed and breakfast where we scored hot lasagna, salad, garlic bread, and cinnamon rolls for just 10 bucks each. It was hot in the valley because we were now at just 5,500 feet above sea level but the quiet farm vibe was relaxing ahead of our 5,300-foot climb on day six. Day six. This was the day we had all been anxiously awaiting. 5,300 feet of climbing over just 25 miles. None of us had ever climbed that much in a single day, so we weren't sure what to expect. On the one hand, it was day six, which meant the trip was almost over. On the other hand, we had a long way to go before all that downhill in Moab. After five days of riding, we figured we were at least in better shape than when we started. Paradox Valley is basically surrounded by mesas on three sides, so we knew we were in for a steep early climb to get out of the valley. We didn't realize it at the time, but we would actually be following part of the 105-mile Paradox Trail that links the Tabawatch and Cocopelli Trails. 
Just a mile from the hut, we began a 2,000-foot ascent with incredible views of the valley below. One member of our group had been suffering knee problems over the past several days and was luckily able to find a local to shuttle him to Buckeye Reservoir about halfway to the next hut. After about an hour and a half, we made it to the top of the mesa and the scenery quickly changed from scrub and cacti to tall pine forests. The ground beneath us was still dry, but at least it was cool and shaded. After another thousand feet of more gradual climbing, we made it to Buckeye Reservoir and eventually the Colorado-Utah state line. We ate a quick lunch of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches at the line and continued to climb and the scenery changed again with rushing streams, placid lakes, and aspen trees all around us. At around mile 20, we veered off the forest road and onto a private ranch double track for the final four-mile climb to our hut. The night before, we had received updated directions to the Geyser Hut because the hut had been moved just the week before. The new hut location was about a mile closer than the old one, and the route was to be marked with red tape tied to tree branches. Now, I'm not sure if exhaustion played a role here, but we completely missed the flags and ended up just a quarter mile from the old hut location before we realized we were heading in the wrong direction. Not only that, we were now in the middle of a herd of cattle with a snorting bull less than 50 yards in front of us. We could literally see the steam coming out of his nostrils. Turning back down the trail, we retraced our steps and found the steep approach to the new hut location. Including our detour, we had climbed almost 6,000 feet that day and were wiped out from the effort. At least we had 7,000 feet of descending to look forward to the next day. Day 7, our final day. Before we could enjoy our 7,000 feet of descending, we needed to start the day with a push over Geyser Pass itself. That meant about a 1,000 feet of climbing, which actually went by fairly quickly, though we did walk a fair amount of it on the ranch roads. As soon as we left the property, we saw groups of shuttle riders heading up to Burrow Pass and past shuttle vans parked on the sides of the forest road. I won't talk much about the change in scenery between Geyser Pass and the town of Moab, other than to say it's a stark contrast. Anyone who's ridden the whole enchilada knows what I'm talking about. Our minds were pretty much blown the entire way down. We mapped a customized route for the day that included the Moonlight Meadows Trail, which turned out to be a high alpine, cow-carved single track through meadows and aspen groves. Moonlight Meadows fed into Clark Lake Trail, which was basically more of the same, though with more evergreen forest and stream crossings. From the bottom of the Clark Lake Trail, we took a connector back up the mountain to get to the Hazard County Trail. I was a little frustrated that we were still climbing and not making progress toward the town of Moab, but that quickly went away as we started the Hazard County descent. Bank turns, incredible views, and smooth single track. My favorite single track of the entire trip. Hazard County dumped us onto Cocopelli's Trail, which at this point is basically a forest road, but it was fast and fun descending to UPS. The UPS Trail reminded me of Gooseberry Mesa a bit. Sections of slick rock, chunky rocks, and quick stretches of hard pack and sand. Most of us crashed at least once on UPS, including myself, twice. And to be honest, I wasn't happy with my bike handling on the technical stuff. I was, after all, loaded down with a week's worth of bikepacking gear. I decided to skip LPS and Porcupine Rim and headed down into town on Cocopelli's Trail while the others completed the gauntlet. Just before 4 p.m., we regrouped at the Moab Adventure Inn, changed out of our bike clothes, and scarfed burgers and beers at the Moab Brewery 
before Jake and I took the Porcupine Shuttle back to Durango. Our epic Moab single-track tour put us into Moab a couple hours past our estimated time of arrival, but fortunately the super guys and gals at Porcupine waited for us and didn't give us too much shit. We felt kind of bad about how dirty and stinky we were, especially sitting in such a nice new van for the three-and-a-half-hour ride from Moab to Durango. While the trip was difficult and frustrating at times, I felt a little bummed that it was over so quickly. Fortunately, Jake and I had an extra day to relax in Durango before early flights Saturday morning. I even surprised myself by getting back on the bike the next day and tooling around the telegraph trails a bit. This is one of those trips all of us will remember for a long time, at least until the next one. So if you're interested in doing a similar trip, there are hut operators along this route from Durango to Moab and also from Telluride, Colorado to Moab. Both of those routes are run by the San Juan hut system. Uh, You can Google that and find more information about it. And there are other hut-to-hut trips in other parts of the country as well. So look online for more information about that. One of the advantages of doing a hut-to-hut trip is that you don't have to bring all your gear with you. Like I said, there are huts spaced out that are along your route where you end each day. And each of those huts is stocked with water and food and beds and sleeping bags. So really all you're carrying is your clothing and any emergency tools or parts that you might need to bring. So it's a good intro to bikepacking or for those who don't want to completely rough it on a trip like this. If you'd like to read the full story again or to check out photos from my trip, be sure to check out Single Tracks and search for Durango to Moab. That's all we have this week. Talk to you again next week. Peace.